Our Heavenly Father, we bow here in your presence once again, and Lord, we are grateful. We're grateful for all that you have done for us, and there's just the privilege of coming together to worship together, to pray together, to study together, just to love on each other and encourage each other. So Father, I pray now as these requests are being lifted up that you would meet these people in their point of need, whatever that may be. And Lord, we are trusting you to work in their lives. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, why don't you all be seated. While they're being seated, let me remind you that this evening at 5 o'clock we're having the uh, uh, reception, the retirement party, I guess we call it, uh, for Ronnie and Sharon. It'll be back in the fellowship hall. I don't want to invite all of you to be here for that. And uh, just come and join us as we celebrate their ministry here at the church. Let me begin by sharing with you this funny story. It has to do with uh, two teenagers in a cemetery. It says, on the outskirts of a small town, there was a big old pecan tree just inside the cemetery fence. One day, two boys filled up a bucket full of pecans and sat down by the tree out of sight and began to divide the nuts up between them. One for you, one for me. One for you, one for me, said the boys. Several dropped and rolled down the hill toward the fence. And uh, about that time, another boy came riding along the road on his bicycle. And as he passed, he thought he heard the voices from inside the cemetery. He slowed down to investigate, and sure enough, he heard one one for you, one for me. One for you, one for me. Now, he just was sure that he knew what it was, so he jumped back on his bike and he rode off. Just around the bend, he met an old man with a cane hobbling along. He said, come here quick. He said, you won't believe what I just heard. Satan and the Lord are down at the cemetery dividing up souls. The man said, beat it, kid. He said, can't you see it's hard for me to walk, let alone get around and go to a cemetery? But the boy kept insisting. And so the man hobbled slowly to the cemetery, following along behind the boy. Standing by the fence, they heard, one for you, one for me. One for you, one for me. The old man whispered, he said, boy, he said, you are telling me the truth. He said, let's get down closer and see if we can see the Lord. So shaking with fear, they peered through the fence, yet were still unable to see anything. The old man and the boy gripped the wrought iron bars of the fence tighter and tighter as they tried to get a glimpse of the Lord. And at last they heard, one for you, one for me. That's all. Now let's go get those two nuts down by the fence and we'll be done. (laughs) Witnesses say the old man made it back to town five full minutes before the boy on the bike ever did. Uh You know, it's amazing what you can do when you have to. And when it comes time for running around and running fast, I guess anybody can do it regardless of your age. This new series that we are on starting today is uh, entitled, Lord, Please Just Leave Me Alone. Um, And as I think about this, I think that probably more often than we realize, um, we have thought that as God would pursue us to get something uh, from us or to get us to do something or ask something, something of us, we sometimes tend to run. And we're going to be looking at, really, the book of Jonah. That's what this is about. Um, Jonah, kind of funny, uh, has been called the running prophet, and that's for sure what he was. Let me show you just the extent that he went to in this running. And I, do, do we have that map? Mickey, go ahead and put that map up. 
This is a map of the um, the world as it is today, but I've put in there, if you'll notice the red lines, where Israel is, right there at the end of the Mediterranean, right on the coastline. And up to the right, you'll see the dotted red line that goes up. That's about where Nineveh is, the city that God told Jonah to go to and to preach to and to tell them to repent. It's about 500 miles from Israel up to Nineveh. Nineveh's up in modern-day Iraq. Um, you'll notice the red line going to the left. It's going out through the Mediterranean Sea. And it goes all the way over to Spain. It says in the text, as we'll see here this morning, that Jonah ran to Tarshish, which is ancient Spain, our city in ancient Spain. Now, it's 2,500 miles from Israel to Spain. The exact opposite of where God told him to go. Now, what is beyond Spain and Portugal there? there you'll see them together. What is beyond that? Anybody know? The Atlantic Ocean, yeah. Um, the known world, that was the limits to the known world. In other words, the Atlantic Ocean, they had no idea what was out there, and they didn't want to venture out there. This is 800 years before Christ when this takes place. So America hadn't been discovered. Columbus was about 2,300 years from coming on the scene. So they had no idea what lay beyond that stretch of land there. The reason this is important is this. Jonah's intent was to go to the ends of the earth to get away from God. It was the end of the known world. That's all they knew was there. He said, I'm going to go as far away in the opposite direction as I possibly can in order to get away from God. Now, like I said, I think all of us have felt that way at some point where you just want to get away from God. I'll never forget, like in, I think it was 1973, 4, somewhere in there, God was pulling in my heart to go to Bible college, and I didn't really understand why, but I knew I didn't want to go. There were just too many things up in the air, moving a family, no job, giving up a job you've got, that sort of thing. And you, you run, you really do. You try to hide from it, you try to ignore it, you try to put it, out of, <clears throat> put it out of your mind, but eventually you give in, hopefully. Because if you don't, uh, as you'll see today, sometimes things just go the opposite direction for you real fast. I didn't run any longer. I gave that up, and I ran to God instead of away from God. And, and I look back on those days, and I think to myself, how it could have gone the other way, and where would I be today? What would have happened? And I'm so grateful that I had enough uh, spiritual sense at the time to realize that I couldn't do this any longer, and I had to give up. Some of you are still running, running from God for whatever reason. Uh, various reasons why we are running from him. But um, maybe God's trying to pursue you to change something about you. Maybe God is pursuing you, trying to get you to do something. Uh, I don't know. But if this is your situation and you are running away from God, then hopefully today what I'd like to do is to encourage you. I want this to be a message of encouragement to help you to understand the, the foolishness of doing it and to hopefully to get you to stop just to turn around and do what it is that God's calling you to do. What is it God's asking of you? What is it God wants from you? And to stop running away. And it could be, like I said, any number of reasons, and we'll talk about some of those later on this, in, this, uh, <clears throat> in this sermon today. I want to uh, look at the text. We're going to jump right in and get going. Um, this story 
as so many narratives do in the Bible. A narrative is where you have somebody telling a story. Um, there's so many applications. There's so many things that you can, you can look at and get out of the story that applies to life. Now, sometimes you can preach a sermon and you focus in on one application for the entire sermon. But I'm doing it a little bit differently today. I'm going to look, be looking at four different applications just out of the first chapter that we're going to be looking at. And they're all totally unrelated. So if you're trying to find a connection between them, there's not one. But I want to bring these things out and, and make a point with it because I think that they're all important applications and uh, something that we need to be aware of today. It's often um, asked whenever you come to Old Testament narratives and, and some of the books in the Old Testament, is this really, is it really true? Did it really take place or is it just like a, a um, parable or an allegory or something like that? And let me just show you how you can tell the difference. There are two reasons why you know that this is a true event, that it really did take place. It's not just a parable. Number one, he is called by name. And in the parables, there are never any names given. Jesus gave parables. He said, well, there was a man one time. There was the, and you know, and it even says that they're parables. And they're just fictitious stories or illustrations to make a point. This is real. And we know that because of that. But not only that, we know it's real because Jesus quoted about him. He, he, he acknowledged that it was real. Look with me, for example, in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 40. Jesus, in his ministry, says this. He says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, he's drawing a comparison between Jonah being in the fish or whale. We'll call it a whale for, for, since we've learned it that way from grade school. But um, he's just drawing this comparison that Jonah existed. And this is what he, he's telling you. This is what he's getting wants you to know. Let's jump into the, to the text, though, and begin to look at this. In Jonah chapter 1, it goes like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, again, he's, he makes no bones about it. He's getting on the ship. He's heading as far away from God as he can possibly get for one reason only, just to get away. Now, a few things. Jonah was not just some poor schmuck that God called upon to go to Nineveh. Jonah probably was already a prophet. He had prophesied before. God had used him before, that type of thing. So this wasn't some guy randomly chosen. As a matter of fact, um, Jonah, as you'll find is later on, understood something about God. You know, you've got to wonder why he would go so far to get away from God. And the reason being, he tells you in chapter 4, he knew that if, God, if he preached to these people in Nineveh that God would forgive them. And he didn't want that to happen. Now that may sound bizarre to you. Maybe he was afraid and so forth, but not really. He tells you in chapter 4, I did it because I knew, I knew that you were going to let them off the hook and I didn't want that to happen. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 4. It's a great message for all of us, a great lesson. But at any rate, Jonah runs because he doesn't want any part of this. Now, you need to understand something. 
Nineveh is like the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It is huge. There are 120,000 people living in Nineveh. We'll see that when we get to chapter 4. It is a huge ancient city. The walls were tremendously high, thick, well fortified. It was something to, to, be, to be afraid of. And this is the city where God says to Jonah, I want you to go down there and I want you to tell them that they, they got about 40 days and said, I'm going to come and I'm going to make things right. And they can repent or I'll destroy them is basically what the message is. In verse 4 it says this, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Wait a minute. Yep, all right, he's fleeing from God. I thought I'd got ahead of myself. In verse 4, it says, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All of the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea and lightened the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God, and maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. The voyage is underway. Now, I don't know how far away they got from Joppa or the the, the coastline of Israel. I don't know how far off they got. They didn't probably get too far because God sent the storm. And I don't know, after he, the whale swallows him, how long he wanders around or how far he wanders around out there until he finally coughs him up onto the coastline. So we don't know any of that, how far he got or anything like that. But the storm is tremendous. Out on the sea, uh, the Mediterranean Sea, storms would come up quickly, and they were ferocious. And these men understood that this was something that was uh, going to take them down. And it says here, and, and let me make this point because this is one of the points of application that I want to make. Uh, So listen very carefully. Here's point number one. When you disobey God, other people suffer. I want you to understand that other people suffer when you disobey God. Now, where am I getting this? Well, here these men are. They are merchants. That's all they are. They're heading 2,500 miles away with a tremendously costly cargo. This is one of the trade routes across the Mediterranean Sea. And they didn't ask for this. They had done nothing wrong to deserve this. They are about to die, and all of their ship is going to go down with them, all only because of Jonah and his disobedience. Not only is that part of the problem, but it says that they threw out the cargo of the ship in order to lighten the load. Now, you've got to understand something. They're throwing out olive oil, wine, textiles, pottery. They're throwing out everything that they had that was on that ship that would cause or give it weight. All of this was of great value. They had to answer for this. They had to be accountable for it. And so, yeah, Jonah's sinfulness, Jonah's disobedience is costing them. You know as well as I do that when you and I sin, when we, are, we choose to be disobedient to God, there are a lot of people in our lives that catch the fallout from our sinfulness. How many of you were raised by an alcoholic parent? Raise your hand. Raised by an alcoholic parent. Quite a few. Did you suffer because of that? Did you suffer? Yeah. I bet you did, didn't you? You suffered because your mom or your dad decided that it was more important for them to drink 
than it was to take care of you or show you the affection that you needed. And it has affected you all of your life. Don't tell me that that sin doesn't affect other people. Some of you were raised by one parent because the other parent was in jail. That affected you, didn't it? Because one person in your life that meant so much to you decided that they wanted to do something that put you in jeopardy. And it has affected you. Many of you are children of divorced parents. And you lived through a divorce where mom and dad were wanted to kill each other, where it was brutal, where everything was divided up, where your life was in disarray. And it doesn't matter who's at fault or why it happened. That's not the point. The point is somewhere along the line, mom and dad decided that you didn't matter as much because they were too busy hating each other. And because of their disobedience and willingness to make changes, you suffered. Every time we decide to be disobedient to God, somebody around us suffers. Some of you are living lives right now that are dishonest and your children are being affected. They're learning how to be dishonest. Some of you are being lazy and won't work and your children are learning to be that kind of person. Some of you are being immoral and your children know it. Your sinfulness is affecting their lives. And guys, this happens all the time, whether it be people at work, people in your extended family, people in church, people in your community. Your disobedience to God affects other people. It's just a way, it's part of life. It's just the way it is. And you and I have to come to this understanding, this realization, that I'm accountable. I'm accountable not just to God, but I'm accountable for the other people whose lives I have influenced in a negative way. And I don't know, but someday I've got to believe that we're going to stand before God. We're, you know, believers. We're going to be in heaven with him. But somehow, I'm going to have to maybe give an account to say, okay, God, I, I blew it. Yeah. And my kids grew up to be the way they are because of me, because of my disobedience. Mom and Dad, wake up, okay? Wake up. Because your disobedience to God affects your children. It really does. Here's the second point. And again, I told you they're unrelated. But the second point, something I want to bring out in this passage, and that is this. Here's the point. If religion is all you have, then one religion is as good as another. If religion is all that you have, then one is as good as the other. It doesn't really matter. You know, what catches my attention in this part of the story is this. They are in the middle of the storm, and they, they're crying out to each other. They're crying to their own gods, the Bible says, their own little idols, their own gods. And the captain goes down and gets Jonah, wakes him up. He says, now I want you to call out to your God, too. Maybe he'll do something, because we are covering our bases here. We're calling on every god that we believe in, because they were very polytheistic in those days, very, uh, you know, believed in multiple gods and so forth. And he said, we've got to get this covered because we're going to go down with this ship if we don't do something. And we look at that event, that time period in the ancient world where everything was, you know, the gods, plural. And everybody worshipped in their own god. Every country you went to had a different god. You know something? We're not a whole lot different. In this country, in this country, the one that was founded on the Bible, the one that was founded on Christian principles. You listen today and what you're going to find is a push 
for this ecumenical mentality, this Unitarian theology. This says that, hey, look, there are many different ways to God, and who's to say that your way is right and their way isn't? So this is why you can believe whatever you believe, and it doesn't matter. Now, guys, listen, we live in a free country where we have religious freedom and liberty, and we thank God for that. And everyone is free to do that. But to say that it doesn't matter, to say that everything is right, everything is okay, and and you can't make a distinction, you you and I as Christians can't do that. Because, you see, our Bible says, Jesus said, I am the only way, and I'm, I'm it. And so I'm not going to give in and say, no, that's, that's okay. You have the freedom to believe it, but that doesn't make it right. And so we try to make everything even, fair. So as a Christian, when you stand up and you say publicly in any format, that you're right and everybody else is wrong, then you're, you're crucified for it. Because you can't do that in a, in a country where we believe that there are many roads to God. But you can. And you have to. And it's not being unfair or unloving for you and me to say to a person that you can pray to these gods and you can be religious and think whatever you want to. You have the freedom to, to do that. But understand this, it means nothing. And one is as good as the other. Whatever label you put on it, it really doesn't matter because it's wrong. And see, this is hard. And this is happening more and more and more in our country that we as believers are backing off of proclaiming the truth because we don't want to offend people who don't believe. And you need to understand that when we speak up, we are loving those people because we are showing them the truth. And we have to be bold in that area. All roads do not lead to God. There's only one way. And you and I have to have the courage to proclaim that in the face of a, of a society where it's becoming more increasingly difficult for that to be accepted or tolerated. Let's move on. In verse 7 it says, Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? And Where do you come from? And what's your country? And from what people are you? Now, they knew something was up. They knew something was wrong. This is not normal. They could even see this. They knew this. That they're, This is why they're praying to the gods. Why are you doing this to us? This just came up on us all of a sudden. And because it did, somebody's got to be responsible for it. There's got to be a reason for it happening. Now, it's true, because in this situation, that there was a reason. Sometimes a storm is just a storm, you know. Sometimes bad things happen just because they do. But in this particular situation, everybody seemed to know that there is a guilty party present here. And this is the reason it's happening. Now let me say this. I believe with all my heart that when God wants to chasten you and me, when God wants to discipline us, when God wants to bring about something like this in in our lives to turn us around, so to speak, I believe with all my heart that God's going to make you aware of that. I believe that deep down in your heart you're going to know this is the hand of God, His discipline in my life. And you'll know it. Otherwise, it's a wasted if I don't at least perceive that. And I believe that's part of the Spirit's job to do that, and this is what he's doing here. 
And so they're asking the question. Now here's the answer. And it says in verses 9 and 10, Jonah, he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of Israel, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? Now they knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Now, what does that mean? Well, I mean, he comes on board the ship. I've got to believe that they were asking questions. You know, where are you headed to? What are you, what are you going there for? What's going on? Well, I'm Jonah, and I'm heading to Tarshish, and I'm running away from God. What? You know, but somehow they knew that. He told them. And I've got to believe, you know, he's sitting there, he's talking to them. He's the, my God wanted me to go to Nineveh and tell them to straighten up. Can you imagine that, me going to Nineveh? And everybody laughs, you know. They knew what he was doing. I'm running away. I'm not going to do it. So they already knew that. Now here's some interesting stuff here. Watch. Verse 9 says, He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. Now, I told you this before, but let me repeat this in case you missed it or not here that Sunday or whatever. In the Old Testament, Whenever you see the word Lord or God, it's all capital letters. There's a difference in that word and a word where you look and you see Lord or God, where it's a capital L, and then the rest of them are lowercase letters. Here's what happened. Centuries ago, the scribes, the translators of the Old Testament were so concerned that somebody would mispronounce or use the Lord's name in vain. They took the name of God, which was in the Bible, the Old Testament, and they removed all of the vowels from the word. So what you're left with in Hebrew are four letters. Y-H-W-H is all that's left of the word originally that was in the Bible for the, word, for the name of God, his personal name. Now, we've gone back and tried to, scholars have tried to, put vowels in where they might have gone, and you come up with, a, in Hebrew, it's pronounced Yahweh, if you put vowels in there, or Yahovah, or Jehovah, as we, it has come to be pronounced. We don't really know what that word was because we don't have all of the vowels. That was done on purpose by the translators uh, of old, ancient times, in order to keep man from using the name in vain, like the Ten Commandments said. So now, modern-day translators, so what they've done is this. Every place in Hebrew where that word is, they let you know that by giving you capital L-O-R-D, or capital G-O-D. You know that was the personal name, Jehovah, we'll call it, for lack of understanding, Jehovah, that that was there. Now, where where you see the word capital G or capital L, and the rest are lowercase, then you know that that word in Hebrew is Elohim. It's the word for God, but it's not the personal name of God. It's just the word for God. Now, there's another one. They're all lowercase letters. God and Lord are all lowercase. And that word is in the Hebrew Adonai. And it basically means this. It's, it's, it's me. You could call me Lord if I am Lord of my manor, you know, Abraham was called Lord. You call a king Lord. That's the word that was used for that. But the important one, the personal name for God, all capital letters, Jonah is asked, who are you? He said, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship Jehovah. 
the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And when he said that, they were terrified. What were they afraid of? They're sitting there in the middle of a storm, and he tells them, I'm running away from the God who made the sea. I'm running away from the God of the ocean. And they immediately knew, you're the one. You're the problem. Because he had already told them that. Notice what happens in verses 11 and 12. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Now they're, they know what they have to do, but they don't want to. Here's what Jonah says in verse 12. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. How did Jonah know that if he was thrown into the sea, that the sea would calm down? How did he know that? Like I said before, God has already told him. He knows in his heart. He knows he's guilty. And he knows that if he is to die, the men would be spared. Now here's a question for you. In the fourth or third chapter, I think, Jonah cries out to God from the belly of the fish, and God coughs him up on the sea. God forgives him. Why didn't he do it here? Why, when he understood that God has done this to me, why didn't he repent right then and there and spare everybody all of the grief? If he knew that God would calm the storm, then why didn't he do it? Because Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh. That, my friend, is determination. That is hard-heartedness. And some of you are already there, too. Some of you would rather die. Some of you would rather take the punishment of God or the chastening hand of God rather than do whatever it is that God's called you to do. Because that, to you, would be worse than death. It's a shame that Jonah couldn't, while he was on board the ship, gone ahead and come and said, Lord, I'll go. Just spare the ship. Turn it around. I'll go. And I believe God probably would have done that. But he didn't. It says in the next set of verses, the end of the chapter, it says in verse 13, it says, Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land. They're trying to save him. They don't want to kill him. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. It just keeps getting worse. Guys, the longer you prolong this, the longer you go in your walk of disobedience, it just gets worse. It says in verse 14, Then they cried out to the Lord. Now notice this. They're crying out to Jehovah now. They cried out to Jehovah, probably calling him by name. Please, Jehovah, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. Now watch this. For you, Jehovah, have done as you pleased. What they're saying, they're saying, look, this is your fault, God. You know, you brought this about. You're the one that's trying to to punish this guy. You're the one that's dealing with him. It isn't our fault, but we're going to go down with the ship. We're getting him over, throwing him overboard. 
just don't hold us accountable for this because I know that he's innocent and he, he doesn't deserve to die, but hey, look, this is what we're doing. And so we're doing it. It says in verse 15, Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and watch, and the raging sea grew calm immediately, just like that. They are so impressed that they realize this is something beyond, something we don't understand. Because notice what they do in verse 16. It says, And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord Jehovah, and they offered a sacrifice to the Jehovah and made vows to him. In verse 17, it says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We'll talk about that later. Here's point number three, okay? Point number three. God still works whether you cooperate or not. God still works whether you cooperate or not. Now, guys, don't miss this, okay? Here's Jonah, the prophet of God, living in disobedience and being a disgrace to God, who says, I'm, I'm, go ahead and kill me and be done with it. And so they throw him overboard. And God's still working in the heart of these atheists and these pagans who worship many gods to bring them to faith because they're offering sacrifices to the God of, of uh, J- Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. And they're, they're offering all these sacrifices and making vows to God, saying, God, I will change what I'm doing. You're the only God, and so forth, making vows to God. And God's at work in the lives of these men, even though his prophet over here is falling down on the job. Now, you need to understand this, okay? You need to hear this. God does not need your help. The very fact that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh was not because God needed Jonah. You and I need to understand something. That when you and I are given the opportunity to serve or to minister, to be involved in the, in the kingdom of God, guys, that's a privilege. It's a privilege, okay? We sometimes are afraid of this because here's what we think. In, 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 our, in our human, twisted way of thinking, we believe that we are responsible for saving souls and changing hearts. And we're not. We're not. You see, God does all of this. God just says, I love you so much, I want you to come and be with me and be a part of this. And when I make you a part of this, then I will bless you. And you, you'll find that in your life, there will be a sense of fulfillment and joy. You'll never understand. You'll never imagine if you're not over here with me. And we think this. We think to ourselves, well, wait a minute. All this depends on me. So I'm not about to try to share my faith with somebody because what if I, what if I blow it? And that person goes to hell because of me. I've heard that so many times from people. You know, let me tell you something, okay? There will not be one soul in hell because of you, okay? Because you don't have the power. Your failings cannot alter anything. This is a privilege. And when these guys go into jails and to the prisons and... Uh, other ministries that are uh, taking place here, when somebody's teaching a a children's Sunday school class or a VBS or whatever, and they're sharing the gospel and the message of God with, with, with children, that's a privilege. 
God says, come and join me. And I'll make life worth living. <laughs> You'll know joy like you've never known it. But yet we sit back, and I've seen it so many times, we'll wring our hands and say, but Pastor, what if, what if I blow it? What if I do something wrong? What if, what if I just mess it up and even God can't straighten it out? Don't think so much of yourself, okay? This is a privilege. God wants you to work with Him. God doesn't really need you. That's what makes it so special. God can do it. Yeah, He's taking care of the world. But He says to you and me, come and join me. And that's all we need to do. Here's point number four. It's like the title says, you can run from God, but you cannot hide. You can run. We all do. You can't hide. I don't care where you go. You think you can go to the end of the earth. You think you can hide out. You think you can drop out of church. Whatever. You cannot hide. Now here's the question. What are the ways in which you're running from God? Think about this, okay? What are the ways in which you are trying to run away or hide from God because you don't like what you're feeling, you don't like what you know to be true, you don't like what you think is coming, whatever it may be. Let me give you some examples. Many of us are afraid. An opportunity arises, God says, I want you to, and you know it in your heart, you know, you know what's going on. You feel this compelling urge as God begins to tell you, I want you to go and I want you to share your faith with that person at work. Or I want you to tell that kid at school what you know to be true. I want you to invite them to church. Invite them to youth ministry. And you go through this scenario, of, well, I can't. What will they think of me? What if I fail? Blah, blah, blah. And so we hide out. You know, we don't listen. We, we try to ignore those promptings in our hearts. And we're basically running away. If there were a physical place to go to get away, we would go there but we're just trying to get away from our own conviction. And my challenge to you is this. Rather than running from God, why don't you step out? Why don't you step out? Why don't you try something you've never tried before? Do something you've never done before. Let God take control and see what God wants to do with you and through you rather than you trying to hide out. Because I'm going to tell you from experience, you'll be miserable. Miserable when you hide out. But if you want a life that's fulfilling, satisfying, productive, fruitful, then start stepping out in faith and saying, okay, God, I will do whatever it is that you're calling me to do. Here's another example, okay? Sometimes we're just selfish people. And so God is prompting you to let go of some of your stuff. Maybe there's a charity, a ministry, the church, someone in need, something. But... I don't want to hear about it because I like my stuff. And so I'm not going to give. I'm not going to help because you know what? You never know when I might need that. I'm going to keep it for a rainy day. And so even though I feel the conviction of God, even though I feel the pull of God, I just ignore it. Man, we've become masters at ignoring our conscience, haven't we? We've become masters of just ignoring the promptings. And so my advice what I would challenge you to do is to let go. Man, when God says give, give it. Wherever God says give it, give it. You know? You know, I've had people, and I think I mentioned this to you or somebody um, recently, where I have had people come into my office and want to give money, and I knew they needed it and didn't have it to give, and I've tried to give it back to them. Until one day God said, why are you doing that? 
I'm dealing with them. It's none of your business. Okay. And so I just say, God bless you. And I'm going to believe that God will take care of you and your needs. But whatever God has prompted you to do, then do it. The guilt. Man, we hide from guilt, don't we? Guilt begins to riddle our soul and just ravage us and we are depressed and everything else because we're guilty over something that is going on in life or something happened in the past and we don't like that feeling. So we try to push it down. We try to mask it. So what do we do? Well, we try to replace the guilt with everything that would mask it. It could be alcohol or drugs or sex or anything else that will just get rid of the guilt. We're running away. Do you understand that if you, are, if you are chasing after addiction, addictive behavior, things like you're running away, you might as well go to Spain <laughs> or somewhere because all you're doing is running. And so my advice to you is to confess whatever it is that's eating at your soul. Just tell God. He already knows. And obey. Change. God has told you already, we looked at this last week or the week before, you already have everything you need to be godly. You already have it. Oh man, this is a big one. We run away from God because we're mad at Him. Mad at Him. We are mad at God. Okay, God, my health is failing. My spouse left me. My children died. I lost my mom and dad. My spouse died. I am just really ticked. And because I'm mad at you, I'm not going to serve you. I'm not going to do anything for you. Oh, I cannot tell you the number of people I've encountered over my years of ministry in all these various churches I've been in where that is exactly the case. And sometimes they'll just flat out tell you that. Oh, Pastor, I would like to do this, but... Oh, God let me down years ago. Oh, come on. You know, and ever since then, I've been running from God. I've been running. Here's my advice to you. If you're mad at God, you need to surrender. You just need to give up. You need to acknowledge that God is God and you're not. And God has the right to take your loved one. God has a right to ravage your health. God has a right to do whatever God wants. And you and I have got to be, at least be able to surrender to that and say, I don't understand it. And I sure don't like it. But you're Jehovah. I'm not. Stop running. For those of you that are here and you're lost, you're running from God too. God has been pulling at your heart for how long now? To help, to try to convince you that He is real and that Jesus Christ died for your sins and the conviction is so strong. But you've got all these questions that you just can't seem to find answers for about all of the things that really aren't that important anyway. Well, if I could just get answers to all these questions, then, then I could believe. You're never going to have them. There are some things God never tells us. Nor does he want us to know till we get there. But he says to you and me, Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and if you believe that, if you put your trust in that, I will give you as a free gift eternal life. Now why don't you just take it? Why don't you just take it as the gift that it is, totally by grace, and stop running from me? Because you see, I'm not the ogre that you think that I am. 
I'm not out to hurt you. I want to save your soul. And if that's where you are today and you've been running from God and ignoring the conviction and trying to stay away from church and stay away from reading the Bible, because somehow in the bottom of your, your soul, your spirit, you feel that you're unworthy and that somehow you'll just be rejected and hurt again, then my response to you is to just give up and believe. Just surrender. Acknowledge who He is and accept Him. And stop running. Guys, here's the important question as we bring this to a close, and that is this. What is God going to have to do to stop you from running? What is God going to have to do in your life to get your attention? Now, like I said, sometimes a storm is just a storm. That's all it is. But we know from the Bible that there are times when God moves in, where God says, it's time to turn you around. It's the turning around that hurts. So it's the turning around that's painful. What is he going to have to do to change you? Why don't you do this? You know, a moment ago I said this. Why did Jonah wait till he had to be thrown into the sea to repent? Why didn't he do it on the board of the ship, tell God, I'll go to Nineveh, I'll do what you want, and, and forego all of the suffering? You're doing the same thing. You're doing the same thing. You know what it is. You know the area of your life you need to surrender. You know the area of your disobedience. It's time for you to turn around. It's time to stop. It's time to turn back to God. Understand? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. As you sit here this morning, whatever that is in your life, whatever you're running away from, whatever's causing you to do this, whatever the... The problem is, listen, guys, you need, to, you need to acknowledge what it is and make the change. Turn around now before God throws you into the sea. Because life can get really hard. You know, the Bible tells us that the way of the transgressor is hard. Oh, don't let it get to that point. Deal with it now, right there where you sit. Right there where you sit. What is it that God is saying? For those of you that don't know Him as your Savior, then today is the day for you to let go. Just stop trying to figure it all out and trust Him. For those of us that are living in sin or hiding or running from responsibility, stop it. Just turn around. Stop making excuses and give it up. Just stop running. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you, Father, we are overwhelmed with the reality that you are forever working in our lives. Lord, you are always at work drawing us and molding us and shaping us. Father, don't let us be the victim of our own foolishness. Father, don't let it get to that point. Change us now. And I pray for every one of us that are here today. Whatever the area of our life is that we're running from God, may we stop right here and give it up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.